Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be with you guys. You look good. You look like you've started to enjoy the summer months. We had such a stretch of incredible weather there. I don't know if it'll get better than that throughout the whole rest of the summer, but we'll take it. Um, David is not here. You probably already figured that out. Um, David and Kathy left very, very early this morning for Spokane, Washington. Um, we have a, well, we don't talk about it a whole lot, but we're a part of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And every other year we have national conferences around the country. Thousands of workers come in from around the country and even from overseas, missionary and global staff. And so David is there. He serves on the board of our denomination. And uh, so he has strategic meetings to be involved in today and tonight. And then the conference itself starts tomorrow and goes through the week. I just want to encourage you to pray for David, pray for our denomination. There's some important issues that are going to be discussed there, has the potential to be somewhat contentious. And so pray that God's spirit, God's uh, just calm is upon that place. They make good decisions. And that David, he is a wise man, that he has the ability to influence the direction of our denomination. And so pray for him. So today we continue in our series, today's the last uh, part of that, Average Joe. It's been a good series as we have talked about lots of different people in scripture, men and women, who have, um, well, somewhat average lives, but God just did something extraordinary in their life and allowed them to be real difference makers. And so today, that is not the case. Just going to tell you right up, John the Baptist, we're going to talk about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is no average Joe. He is not your average Joe. The campus guys, campus pastors, were trying to convince me on Monday, oh, no, he's just, he's an average guy because of this and this. And I'm like, no way. When you read his story from birth to death, John the Baptist is not your average Joe. Um, he has an extraordinary birth, an amazing life. Even his death is dramatic and so um, we're going to see that lots of things about John the Baptist are beyond our reach. We just can't reach that far, and that's okay, because there are many things about his life that are within our reach. And so we'll talk about those today. And so the story begins, um, it's a dramatic beginning to John the Baptist's life, and primarily because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. I mean, John the Baptist's Birth and life were prophesied 700 years before he was born. 700 years before Jesus was born or John was born. Um, Isaiah the prophet prophesied about John the Baptist. He was looking on the horizon, the, the horizon of hundreds of years later and saw when the Messiah would come and John the Baptist would be the forerunner to the Messiah. He's seeing this person, John the Baptist. And so we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so Matthew is quoting from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. 
So it's an incredible beginning to John's life. You know, we, we can read in Psalm 139 how God knows all of our days. All of our days are written in God's book before even one of them comes to pass. And that is true for John the Baptist, even because we see it prophesied in Scripture. Uh, the details of his life are laid out for us. It's mapped out. So John the Baptist is going to begin his life by turning the lives of two very special people upside down. John the Baptist comes, he is born out of uh, deep pain and prayer. John the Baptist comes uh, born out of deep pain and prayer. In Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the, statutes of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years." And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are childless in a society that put tons of weight on women having children. And so poor Elizabeth is in public disgrace because of the fact that she is barren. She feels this pain deep down in her soul. And yet we read that they were godly people. They were righteous people, blameless in the way that they lived out their faith. So in other words, they couldn't think of any reason why God wasn't blessing them, why he wasn't showing them his favor by giving them a family. And so it's painful, and it seems unfair, and they don't understand why this is. And so they pray, and they pray, and they pray deep agonizing prayers out of their pain. Oh God, would you give us a child? And God hears their prayers. In Luke chapter one, verse 13, it says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. So John's beginning, his birth is dramatic. I mean, even from the womb, John the Baptist is unusual. You remember the story of when Elizabeth comes to visit, uh, or I'm sorry, when Mary comes to a, a visit Elizabeth, and Mary is expecting, and, and Elizabeth is, is uh, with child. And even inside Elizabeth's womb, when John the Baptist heard the voice of Mary, his spirit is so finely attuned to what God is doing, to what God is going to do in the world, to this plan of salvation, this climax in history by sending Jesus, that John begins to do somersaults in Elizabeth's womb. John the Baptist was no average Joe. His dramatic, miraculous Beginning is beyond our reach. Would you agree? We're not born to 700-year-old um, prophecies. We're born to parents who were decades too old to have children. Or born a family friend or maybe even a distant relative to the Messiah. John's birth is way beyond our reach. 
But what's not beyond our reach is the godliness and the prayerfulness and the faithfulness, the persistence of his parents. That's not beyond our reach. I mean, Zechariah and Elizabeth are a lot like you and a lot like me. They're normal people, normal people with a job and a home, and they're serving God as best they can. And they're desperately wanting a family. And thus far, um, they're disappointed in that. Sounds like a lot of you and I dealing with life, sometimes disappointed by by what comes or doesn't come. But here's where we might fall short of Zechariah and Elizabeth. You get the sense that they never stopped praying. They never stopped. They never gave up. They never lost hope. They kept trusting, serving, putting one foot in front of the other one day at a time. Being the person that God had called them to be that day in spite of a very bad situation. And God, in his mercy, steps into their story in a big, big way. So the encouragement that I was thinking about is, you know, do you find yourself in a bad situation? Do you find yourself in a situation in your life that something just seems broken and you wish, you pray, you hope that God would just fix this? The message of Zechariah and Elizabeth is don't give up. Never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop, never stop hoping and believing like Zechariah and Elizabeth that God just might show up. What can, my, what can God do in this situation? And so John is born in this dramatic way. And so he begins to grow and, you know, he begins his adulthood. Um, but as he grows older, his life becomes less dramatic. In fact, his life becomes very lonely. He begins to live a lonely life. You see, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And that may not mean a whole lot to you. Um, It's not explicitly stated here in the passages that we read or will read, but it's very clear for a couple of different reasons. First, the angel that announces John's birth uses language that was common to a Nazarite vow. It's very clear that he's speaking about a Nazarite vow. In Luke chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For he, John, will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So there's this Nazarite prohibition against strong drink. And one of the parts of a Nazarite vow is that you'll abstain from anything that uh, is related to grapes or fermented grapes or alcohol of any kind. So that's the first reason. Well, the second reason is John's lifestyle. I mean, John, as an adult, is living, excuse me, is living a Nazarite-ish kind of a lifestyle. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair. So his clothes were camel skin, camel's hair. That sounds horrible. Uh, He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. So let's be honest. Nazarites 
by definition, are a little bit strange. You remember John the, uh, uh, Samson, excuse me, you remember Samson. Samson was a little bit out there himself. So you got wild-eyed, crazy-haired, camel-skin-wearing, locust-eating John the Baptist. John never got married. I don't know if that comes as a shock to you, but John was single all his life. So he is out there, both figuratively and literally. The Hebrew word for Nazarite comes from the word that means to separate, to separate. So John the Baptist lives a lonely life. You'll notice from the passages that we just read that all the people go out to see John the Baptist. He doesn't come to where they are. They go to where he is, out in the wilderness, separate and alone. Like an ancient desert monk, John lives in the wilderness. You know, as I was researching and reading about the Nazarite vows, one of the interesting features of a Nazarite vow was avoiding dead people. The carcass of an animal or the, a dead person, um, avoiding dead people. Nothing uh, that you can do that would bring you in direct uh, contact with a dead person. So extrapolate that, and you realize that John the Baptist probably didn't get to attend the funeral of his mom and dad, of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He couldn't do it. He was a Nazarite. He lived a separate life. This is who he is, and he's not going to change for anything. But while John's calling as a Nazarite is kind of beyond our reach, right? Not that any of us would want to be a Nazarite, but it's beyond our reach. But that commitment to who he was and to his identity, that is not beyond our reach. Just a few weeks ago, if you were here on Easter Sunday, uh, here at Centerville and across all of our campuses, we baptized 60 or more people. That was an incredible experience. That was a celebration. Because each one of those people were making a public declaration of their faith in Jesus. They were going into that water and saying, I am a believer. I am a Christian. I am following Jesus. Their identity. They're driving a stake in the ground. They're saying, this is who I am and I'm not changing. Have you been baptized? Have you made a public declaration that you are a Christian and you're going to follow Jesus? This is who you are and you're not changing. In your home, on your street, in your community, at the office or the school, the classroom, do people recognize you as a Christ follower? That's your identity. That's who you are. You're following Jesus with your whole life. And you don't mind that everybody around you knows it. In fact, you want them to know it. You see, we can be as committed to our identity as a Christ follower as John the Baptist was committed to his identity as a Nazarite. And so the story, John's story, continues to unfold. We'll pick it up in Luke chapter 3. In verse 2 it says, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas... The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. See, he's, he's separate. He's out there alone. 
And he went, after that he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so at that moment, at that time in his life, that's when his public ministry really began. What I don't think we often recognize is from that point to his death is only less than a year, probably only about six months, John's public ministry. So his life and his calling are coming to this dramatic climax. And this, this season of his life is going to be, it's going to be a fiery season. It's going to be fiery. We can pick it up again in in chapter 3 of Luke. Verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers. You bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Man. I mean, the message of John the Baptist was described by Isaiah's prophecy. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, what John is really saying is repent. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn to God. Prepare your heart to see God's salvation. Man, one of the coolest things about being a student at Moody Bible Institute way back when, was that each student had a ministry that they were assigned. Um, At least in your freshman year, it was assigned. Um, It was called a PCM, or Practical Christian Ministry. And so that was your assignment in the community, to get you out into the community or in the churches, whatever it might be. My freshman year, my assignment was teaching Sunday school to teenagers at a Korean church in Uptown. And so it was fascinating. You know, the interesting thing is the teenagers spoke great English. They were learning it in the neighborhood, in the schools, um, and very little Korean. Their parents, and particularly their grandparents, spoke great Korean and very little English. It was a fascinating place to, to be. But overall, it was pretty tame. It was pretty tame. The most intimidating thing I faced uh, were the Korean potlucks after church. I mean, they would insist. These were gracious, kind people. They would insist that I had a big plate of Korean food after church, and I ate things that I had no idea what it was. But that was, that was all. Um, but there were many other PCM assignments that were intimidating that were challenging. Some people were assigned to teach Bible studies at the Cook County Jail. 
not me. <laughs> um, a lot of students did something that uh, I just couldn't imagine myself doing. They were assigned to be open-air evangelists, doing open-air evangelism. Just a few blocks from Moody, there was this bar district with bar after bar after bar. And so these students would go out on a Friday and Saturday night, and they would be on the street corner, and they would be handing out tracts and engaging with people as they're doing their bar hopping, and people were in different stages of inebriation, and um, I just can't imagine, I couldn't imagine that. They would stand on the, on the corner, and they would, you know, give messages, they would do chalk talks, they would do all kinds of things to engage with people, and um, man, that just was, I had so much respect for those people who did that. That's not me. I think I would have been horrible added if I had tried it but that was John the Baptist was amazing at that because in fact John the Baptist is like the first open-air evangelist and man was he successful crowds went out to see him from Jerusalem and Samaria all the areas they went out to see him in the wilderness Samaritans went out tax collectors went out um, soldiers, even soldiers went out to see and hear John the Baptist. Pharisees and Sadducees went out to see him. And many, many, many people repented and believed John's message and turned to God. And that's exactly what John was sent to do. That was his mission. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make your heart straight to be able to receive the Messiah. So his, his ministry was amazing, but he made enemies. John the Baptist made lots of enemies. He wasn't afraid to call out anybody uh, or to call out their sin. He called, you, I read, you remember I read, he called him a brood of vipers. Man, that's not gonna win you any friends. You brood of vipers. Who's warned you? of the judgment to come. So uh, he also condemned Herod. Herod, not the Herod that built the temple, but one of that Herod, Herod the Great's sons, was also named Herod, and he was uh, the Tetrarch in Galilee. And John condemned not only his evil, but one sin in particular, the sin of taking his brother's wife as his own wife. He had divorced his wife, his brother, or his uh, brother's wife had divorced her, her husband, and the two of them had gotten married. And John called them out on it publicly. You should not have your brother's wife. And that didn't go over well. And so Herod and Herodias, which, uh, who was his, wife's, uh, who was his wife, um, threw him in prison. They threw him in prison. So this is a fiery season in John's life. And so you and I may not connect with this at all. I mean, John's method to his madness is way beyond our reach. And that's probably good, right? It takes a very special calling to step out into the public eye and begin calling people vipers and sinners and adulterers. You better be very sure of your calling to do such a thing. But what's not out of our reach is John's message. Repent. Repent. 
Turn away from your sin and turn to God through Jesus Christ. That was the essence of John's message. And that's still a vital message for you and I today. That's still an important message for the church. Repent. I know I've, I've told the story of, you know, when I gave my life to Christ, as a 21-year-old guy, you know, I went down on my knee that night and I, I just repented of my sin sincerely uh, with all of my heart and I invited Christ to take over my life. And he didn't let me down. Everything in my life changed that night. But it began with repentance. It began with repentance. But what I probably have not talked a lot about is my daily practice of repentance. I come before God every day, every morning as I spend my time with God before I get into the day, I walk through a prayer of confession, of repentance, taking the time to, to reflect on my day or the week and, to, and asking God to bring to my mind the sins that I have committed, what have I done? And some of them obviously are right at the tip of my tongue. Others of them, God does bring them to my mind. And I take the opportunity to say, God, forgive me for my sin. I turn from my sin. It might be something that I've said, you know, that I wish I hadn't said. It might be a, an attitude that I let get the better of me or a person that I've judged wrongly or a temptation that I've given into, but I verbalize it. What I can remember, all that I can remember, and I ask God to forgive me what I can't remember. See, I ask God to heal the brokenness in my soul because of sin. See, the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I claim that promise every day of my life. It's a vital part of my life with God. Without it, what will happen to me is the same thing James warns about in the first chapter of his letter where he says that um, keep looking in the mirror because if you don't, you'll forget what kind of person you are. And if you forget what kind of person you are, you'll begin to forget what kind of God we have. See, the brokenness of mankind can only be healed through repentance and turning to Jesus. So if you experience brokenness in your life because of sin, this message is for you. Repent. Confess and repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. That's still a message for you today. Do you know somebody in your life, somebody you love or care about, who's gotten their life all wrapped around the axle because of sin in their life and because of sinful decisions? Tell them as lovingly and kindly as you can, repent, repent, turn from your sin and turn your life, turn, turn to Jesus. See, it's an incredible story. John the Baptist is an amazing guy. I love what we talked about last, last week. David said that God uses all our experiences to make us into the people that he can use, difference makers. 
And I thought about that this week. I looked back on my life, different seasons of my life, and how God used them, all of them, to make me into the person that I am today. You see, every season of my life has been like a different school that I've been in. Being raised outside the Christian faith was quite a school. I mean, it certainly gave me the perspective of what it feels like, what it is like to be without hope and without God in the world. And I never want to feel that again. Being married at 21 was an education. I mean, Kay and I were just kids, it seems like. And we grew up together. And we, we just figured life out together. And we're still figuring life out together. I worked for over a decade in a Fortune 500 setting. And that was a great education. Hard work. Hard work. Earning a paycheck. Having a work ethic. All of that is holy and good. Work is holy. Spending four years at Moody Bible Institute was quite the education. Learning to trust God in the unknown or trust God for what you need. Uh, learning truths and values and priorities. And learning how many meals you could make out of ramen noodles. We still make some meals out of ramen noodles. I love those things. So my first decade of pastoral ministry in my first church taught me a lot of things. It taught me that uh, the pastors are just people and that churches are not perfect. So there have been many seasons in school. Um, John the Baptist went to school too. John the Baptist went to the wilderness school. He lived in the wilderness. He learned in the wilderness that, you know, camel's hair is good enough. A locust dipped in honey, yum. Bring it on. That's my meal. He learned to live with what he had. There was another school that John went to, the school of solitude. When he was alone, separate, he learned that it's okay to be the lone voice. It's okay to be the lone voice. I can be all alone in this. That's okay. He learned that lesson. The third school, the school of opposition, where he learned that if I have to stand alone in front of those who oppose me, I'll do it. Here I stand, I'm not changing. And so no matter what came against him, you know, the accusations, the threats, whatever it might be, he stood because he had learned that in a school of opposition. Fourthly, the school of doubt. You know, we think about um, John the Baptist, and for some reason, with this incredible life, we zero in on that blip on the radar when he doubted Jesus. And he said, are you really the Messiah? He sent, you know, some of his disciples to ask, are you really the one that we're anticipating? And I think in that school, he learned that it's okay to wonder. It's okay to doubt, to have questions. He learned that in the school of doubt. And then lastly, the prison school. He learned in the prison school that a life lived for truth is more important than a life with a happy ending. A life lived for truth is more important than a life with a happy ending. See, in each of these schools, God had specific lessons he was teaching John the Baptist. And while John's lessons, right, are beyond our reach, the schools are beyond our reach, there are things that we can learn from him. Um, there are lessons that we can embrace. There are within our reach. 
We can ask ourselves the question, what schools have I been in? What school am I in today? What is God teaching me today by the school of circumstances and challenges and pressures and even pain that's been allowed in my life, that God has allowed in my life in order to shape me as the difference maker that God wants me to be? So there's a final scene in the story of John the Baptist, and it's a tragic ending. It's a tragic ending. As I mentioned before, John the Baptist made some enemies, and one of those enemies got their ultimate revenge. In Mark chapter 6, you probably remember the story where Herod is throwing a party, and in the party, his daughter-in-law dances, and she is so pleasing in her dancing that he, he promises to give her up to half of his kingdom. And her mom put her up to saying, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod, this spineless guy, follows through. And he sends to the prison and he has John the Baptist beheaded and he brings it back to the party on a serving tray. What, what kind of a person does that? And I have no doubt that uh, she had a gleeful laugh, an evil laugh, because she thought, and he's gone. I'll never have to hear from him again. But here's the thing that you and I know. This is what we know. She did not get the last laugh. John the Baptist dies, one of the greatest martyrs of the Christian faith. And wherever the gospel is preached today, John the Baptist is talked about because John's story is on the pages of every gospel account. So much of John the Baptist's life is out of reach for you and I. He's no average Joe. But we can or we cannot live up to his spectacular birth or his unusual life or his blistering preaching or even his nightmarish ending. But what is within reach? What about John the Baptist is within our reach? Being godly, praying, hopeful people like Zachariah and Elizabeth. That no matter what we're facing in our lives, we're persistent. We keep going. We keep praying. We keep hoping. God will visit us. That's within our reach. Secondly, being crystal clear and singularly devoted to our calling and our identity as Christ followers. Just like John the Baptist was crystal clear about what he was, who he was, and he ain't changing. And you and I can be crystal clear on who we are, and we're not changing. Number three, practicing repentance every day of our life turning from sin, turning toward Jesus, being a person of confession, a person whose heart is tender to God, and we willingly repent of our sin and, and trust that God will cleanse us and renew us. It can be a part of our everyday life and should be. And lastly, being willing, allowing God to teach us our lessons in the schools of life. Here's what I know. God's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with me yet. He has so many things he still wants to teach us. And so we can willingly 
cooperate with God as he teaches us those lessons. So much of John the Baptist's life is out of reach, but there's a lot that is within our reach. And so may today uh, we reach for what can be ours, what God can do in our lives, like he did with John. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing story. John the Baptist is just beyond words. And the things that he did, the courage he showed, the resolve, the devotion is just amazing. And so, Lord, it'd be easy for us to turn around and say, well, there's not much I can learn from him. And but yet, we can. We can. And so we offer these things to you, Father, and pray that you would teach us these lessons in our own lives so that we might be transformed, that we might embody the life of Christ, the truths of Christ, and live a life of boldness like John the Baptist. And so we thank you for this. Um, Thank you that we can trust you, that you have a good work that you are doing in our lives. We can trust you with that. We can pray in Jesus' name. Amen.